diary of Henry H. Raymond, 1848 to 1936, contains daily entries for one year during his trip from Callenville, Illinois to Kansas, from November 11, 1872 to November 11, 1873. Topics in the diary discuss Henry's trip to Kansas to meet his brother Theodore, whom he often refers to as Thee in his diary, hunting bison with Theodore and his colleagues from the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad, and musical events he attended. The following is an excerpt from the Henry H. Raymond story, describing his brother Theodore's move to Kansas and his experiences after arriving in Dodge City. Wild West Podcast proudly presents the factual accounts of the Henry Raymond Diary as they may have been told from a first-person perspective. Spring and Summer of 1872 On a farm in Carlinville, Illinois I received a letter from my brother Theodore in the spring of 1872 while he and the Masterson boys were in Buffalo City. In the letter, my brother tells of a story of a man named Raymond Ritter and how he became employed to lay track for the railroad. At the time, the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad was building toward the present location of Dodge City. The government land grant gave the railroad a right-of-way through the state and stipulated that the line had to be completed to Colorado by 1873. Delay after delay held up construction until now. Only a prodigious effort would make it possible to meet the deadline. The company needed help badly and was willing to pay well to get it. Ritter was from Lawrence, Kansas, and was given a subcontract by Wiley and Cutter, a major contractor out of Topeka. At the time, certain portions of the roadbed grading efforts were sublet to minor contractors and private individuals with horses and equipment. This Ritter feller employed the two Masterson brothers on a profit-sharing basis to assist him in filling his contract with Wiley and Cutter. The Masterson boys saw this as an excellent opportunity to make money away from the buffalo fields. So they traveled to the Sedgwick homestead where my brother contributed an old wagon and a team, and they all headed for Fort Dodge to find work on the railroad. Before the boys would receive their wages from Ritter, they were to complete a five-mile section between Fort Dodge and Buffalo City. Buffalo City was a small settlement on the Arkansas River, soon to become known as Dodge City. When they arrived at the work site, they found 500 men and 50 pairs of mules working on grading the track to Fort Dodge. Theodore wrote me soon after and said he had met a Swedish man named Carl Hendricks, who was hired to haul ties from the railroad car to the railroad bed. Carl had been working with the railroad for about a month. He warned my brother to keep a close watch on his team of mules. Carl told Theodore how a bunch of Indians stole his last mule team. He said he got his new team from Charles Rath and named the old mules Tom and Dick. Carl said that Tom and Dick sometimes had a mind of their own, and because of the heat, they would head straight to the Arkansas River to cool off. Carl said it did not matter to the mules, for they took him and his wagon load of ties right to the river bottom. Theodore reported that Ed and Bat had never worked so hard as he had when grading track for the railroad. In his third letter sent to me in July of 1872, Theodore reported that he and the Masterson boys had reached Buffalo City, 
a new tent town, he called it. He said it was a glorious time for them, for they had completed their work and witnessed A.A. Robinson, chief engineer for the Santa Fe, lay out the streets for the new town of Buffalo City. The steel rails followed the grading crews, and on September 12, 1872, the first work train rolled into town. To help celebrate the arrival of the first work train, schooner wagons from Hayes City started arriving. These wagons were full of gamblers and prostitutes. He wrote that this arrival caused quite a stir on Front Street as onlookers of ruffians blazed their guns into the air. Afterward, a tremendous amount of drinking, dancing, and fighting broke out during the evening hours and into the sunrise. My brother wrote that this was the time they were to be paid for their work. Theodore said that the subcontractor Ritter gave Ed and Bat a small amount of money, a partial payment. He then departed for points east, saying he had to get the $300 balance from Wiley and Cutter. He promised to return immediately. But days passed into weeks with no sign of Ritter. Ritter was a fly by the night, and my brother and the two Masterson boys were left stranded in Dodge. Edward and my brother decided to return to Wichita for a short time. He said Bat hired out with a group of buffalo hunters planning a big hunt to the southwest. The following is an expanded excerpt from the Henry Raymond Diary describing his experiences in Dodge City, Kansas. November, Monday 11th, 1872. Started to Kansas from Carlinville, Illinois. Bought a violin in St. Louis. Left there at 11 o'clock at night for Kansas City. I started for Kansas from our farm in Carlinville, Illinois to St. Louis, Missouri on Monday, November 11, 1872. I welcomed my journey with a vigorous heart. This journey was to be an adventurous one. My first time away from home. My travel would take me to Kansas, where I would join my brother Theodore at his homestead in Sedgwick County. As the train pulled away from the station, I tugged down the window and gave a big wave to my father as he watched me leave on my pilgrimage. It took only a short time before the train was well into the countryside. I could feel the steel rails within the passenger car as I watched the landscape, becoming fixated on the rolling hills outside the window. The countryside that passed before me was like a divine fingerprint, curving and changing, no two parts the same. In all the world, this view was unique. I witnessed the lands dip and sway, flora patterns, the ever-changing sky, and the autumn wind flowing through the open window. I could hear the iron wheels of the train rattling on the steel seams of the rails as the steam engine propelled the passenger cars across the earth. I witnessed the late morning sun rays piercing through the window as I watched lush trees covering the landscape with a flourish of warm colors. Daisy yellow, sunset orange, and apple red swirled together as the wind ruffled the leaves. I sighed with contentment at the sun's placement. It was perfect lighting to continue reading my brother's letters. My small doctor's bag sat beside me. I reached inside and took inventory of my luggage. One shirt and a spare pair of trousers, along with my shaving kit, were all I had to my name. I had brought some money to purchase some needed items along the way. I looked down at my well-worn shoes and wondered if my light wool jacket, shirt, and pants were enough to get me by until I reached Wichita. But, of course, all the clothes I wore were of thick cotton. 
My mom insisted she would not let me leave on my journey unless she ironed my clothes to perfection. I got off the train to St. Louis and visited a music store where I purchased a violin. I played some of my favorite tunes at the depot while I waited to board the 11 o'clock night train to Kansas City. November, Tuesday the 12th, 1872. At Kansas City, bought violin string E. Left there at 5 o'clock and 15 minutes p.m. for Topeka. On my way to Kansas City, as I was boarding the train, I nicked my new violin, and one of the strings broke. This accident with the violin was upsetting to me, as I had planned to play it one evening, once I arrived at my brother Theodore's homestead. However, I was much relieved after arriving in Kansas City to find a music store. I purchased the broken string E for my new violin. I restrung the violin before I boarded the train in Topeka at 5.15 in the afternoon. While on the train to Topeka, I met a young lady who sat directly across from me. When I first glimpsed at her, she waved goodbye to a well-wisher from the passenger car's window. Her name was Sarah Armstrong, and her beauty quickly took me. Her hair was like waves of pure earth, softly reflecting the light of the afternoon sun. She then turned and looked at me. Do you play? she asked. For a moment, I stammered with her question, trying to find the answer. Finally, like a river waters, her eyes looked directly at the violin I held in my left hand. Oh, yes, I said, I do play the violin. With this violin and bow, I can tell you anything. Would you play it for me? I then thought to myself, I can conjure the deep oceans of emotion and tell them straight to your heart. And at that moment, in just a fraction of time, her smile was in every God-given feature. I knew I was to play for her. So I did. I played away until the time we reached Topeka. The time for me from Kansas City to Topeka passed swiftly. The eight hours that passed seemed tireless and rewarding at the same time. I can only say that I enjoyed Sarah's company. A joyous time indeed. November, Wednesday the 13th, 1872. Left Topeka for Sedgwick at 1 o'clock a.m. Stayed at Sedgwick House. In morn, went to Masterson's. Terrible cold and windy. Walked out 10 miles. The train stopped at midnight in Topeka to let off passengers and other goods stored in cargo cars. I bid my farewells to Sarah, wished her well, and helped her with the luggage as she unboarded the train. As the train pulled away from the station, I could only think that each phrase of living has its forms of arrival and leaving. If we're lucky enough for these moments to remain in the realm of the symbolic, we can stay with those we meet in memory as we travel throughout our lives. My only hope at the moment was that I would see Sarah once more. I dreamed at a second's notice of a time when I had less adventure in my blood. Maybe then, I thought. Maybe then. But for now, my experience was still ahead of me. Where this adventure would land me, I had no idea or any expectations. Then finally, the train's big engines churned and the wheels of the cars below me jerked forward with one mighty tug and pulled out of the Topeka station for Sedgwick at 1 o'clock a.m. 
It was late when the train pulled into Sedgwick. My brother told me the best place to stay would be the Sedgwick house. He also reminded me that the town was a cattle town and the northern terminus of the Chisholm Trail. Sedgwick had developed into an essential cattle center along with Newton. In addition, the Wichita and Southwestern Railroad Company had just arrived, so the town was growing. While at the Sedgwick house, I purchased a pocket diary and spent evening and morning hours recording my journey. November, Thursday the 14th, 1872. West to Masterson's. Stayed all night. On the morning of November 14th, I started my 10-mile journey west to the Masterson's place. I had hoped that Ed and Bat would be there to greet me. The wind was terribly harsh that day, sweeping the land with bold honesty, a rawness that made me wish I had brought a warmer coat. I had not realized how cold this country was, chiefly when the wind howled from the north. A biting cold came with a chill that awakened both my toes and fingers. Nevertheless, I did not tarry a bit along the country road leading me to a place where I could take shelter and warm comfort by a fire. I remember when the Masterson family moved to Sedgwick County, Kansas in June 1871. Thomas Masterson, Bat, and Ed's father took his family to the edge of the advancing frontier. They wanted to build a homestead from the ground up and take a glimpse of life in the wild and woolly west. Sedgwick County lay directly between two rip-roaring new cow towns, Newton to the north, and Wichita only a few miles west of the Arkansas River to the Buffalo Range. Theodore wrote me in 1871 expressing the Masterson boys' desire to hunt buffalo along the vicinity of Medicine Lodge. Theodore said the boys had agreed to stay with their father that first summer, helping him to construct a sawed house and turn the virgin grassland for crops. The spirit of adventure was strong within them. When I arrived at the Masterson place, I was happy to see both Thomas and Catherine, but disappointed when Thomas told me that my brother Theodore and Ed had already left for Dodge City. Catherine made me a warm meal and sat by the fireplace afterward, reminiscing about our time in Illinois. I asked Thomas about Ed and Bat. He told me how a railroad contractor had defrauded them and that Bat and Theodore had returned to the Buffalo Fields. He said Ed worked at a Dodge City restaurant and lived with the Nixon family. We closed our evening together upon Catherine asking me to play a few tunes on the violin. Before we turned in for the evening, Thomas said he would hitch up the mules in the morning and get back to Sedgwick early. He said if we left before sunrise, I could catch an early train to Newton. November, Friday the 15th, 1872. Came back to Sedgwick. Started to Newton at 8.5 o'clock p.m. From there to Dodge City. Got pair of boots, $6.50. Stopped at Newton for express train. Got shaved. Got cakes and box prize candy. November, Saturday the 16th, 1872. Got to Dodge City at 6.55 a.m. Stopped at Nixon's. Wrote to Seth. Bought soldier overcoat this evening. Paid $5. On Saturday, November 16, 1872, I arrived at Dodge City on the westbound train to Colorado. 
It was 6.55 a.m. when I stepped off the loading dock and noticed a small boxcar served as a train depot. The large steam engine puffed away in a slow but rhythmic beat as the coal fire and water worked harmoniously, hissing pressure from the idle engine. Men worked in unison with a few shouted commands to unload the many freight cars onto the loading docks. The twilight of the evening faded to a comforting black, called to the souls of the nighttime as the light of oil lamps glimmed with adventure on Front Street. The evening dusk was a velvet carpet outlining the shadows of a tremendous freighting town to all points south and west. As the cold wind reached deep into my bones, I started for the general store. I soon recognized what the wind on the open plains was like, just as a door left wide open, slamming only to open again. I did not have time to look at it, as the only thing to do was keep moving, keep heading toward a place to get warm and find an overcoat. At the general store, I purchased a soldier overcoat for $5, and then made my way one-fourth mile west to the Nixon home. I traveled the dark road that was once the Santa Fe Trail leading out to the Nixon Ranch. The blackness was perfect, a sort of visual silence that gave a reverence of awe. Upon this clear night, I looked up into the black heavens and came the grace of a white crystal moon. The wind was swift about me as I became anxious to see my brother and my masters and friends. When I reached the edge of the road leading to the ranch, I could see a shadow of a sawed house with a plume of smoke rising above the chimney. The sawed house looked inviting for its warmth. I called out from a distance to not startle the inhabitants within. Hello, I yelled. My name's Henry. Henry Raymond. Is there anyone who will receive me? The door to the sawed house opened. I could see the shadow of a woman's figure highlighted by the inner lighting. A woman's voice replied, My name's Cornelia. Whom have you come to see? I'm here to see my brother Theodore, I called out. He was staying at your ranch with the Masterson boys. Yes, replied Cornelia. Why don't you come in out of the cold? My husband's away on a hunting party and should return with Theodore soon. I walked to the house, entered through a small wooden frame, and thanked Cornelia for receiving me. She held in her arms a young baby wrapped in a quilted blanket. This is Jess Nixon, she said. He's three months old, born on August 7th this year. Howard, my two-year-old, is in bed. I quickly took a short glance at the small living quarters. The fireplace brought a dancing glow into the heart of the room. I went over to the rough wood mantel, upon which stood an exquisite plate-glass clock, the chimes of which were striking nine. I stood by the warm fire to feel the warmth in amber glow. Would you like some coffee? asked Cornelia. Yes, please. Do you have any idea when Theodore and the boys will return? I asked. No, but soon, she said. I know Theodore was expecting you. I watched her gently place the baby in the crib, then retrieve a tin cup from the shelf over the iron stove. Are you out here all alone? I asked. Yes, she replied. I'm used to it. This is my way of life from when Tom and I married and lived in Nevada. She paused, picked up an iron pot from the stove, poured the hot liquid into a tin cup, and brought it over to me. Would you like to have a seat? she asked. Thank you, I said. It's been a long journey, and my legs are weary. I pulled up a chair next to the fireplace. 
Cornelia walked over to where I was sitting and sat on a wooden rocking chair. Now where was I, she said. Oh, yes. Tom had this get-rich idea and decided to be a prospector for a while. Then, after our first child, Albert, died, we decided to move to Kansas to strike a claim. So we ended up near Fort Dodge so Tom could haul hay and wood for the military post. He's now a hunter bringing in buffalo hides and making good money. Cornelia smiled. He's probably the best hunter in these parts. That's why Bat, Ed, and your brother took up with Tom. What about you? she asked. Would you like to bed down in the barn for the evening? Ed, Bat, and Theodore have bunks out there that they're not using. Besides, I would feel much safer knowing you were about the place. That night, I took refuge in the barn. November, Sunday the 17th, 1872. Down at town. Got box of boot grease, 50 cents. Crackers and cheese. Left shirt to get washed at dugout. Terrible cold and windy. Bought pistol scabbard for 50 cents. I was up early the following day, dressed, went outside, and stretched before sunrise. I looked to the east to see the sun blooming out on the horizon. The golden rays of the sun stretched outward into a rich blue sky. I could only think how cold days have a way of chilling the bones, of seeking out the merest spark of heat. The cold played on me like a robber who has come to take possession of the entire dwelling, warming its thieving hands at the heart of its hearth. So here it sets, gremlin grin, believing it can remain forever, forgetting that the seasons pass upon a steady clock. When I entered the sod house for breakfast, Cornelia greeted me with a smile and a hot cup of coffee. I asked her how she liked living in the sod house during our conversation. She told me that living out on the prairie had several drawbacks. First, a house built from dirt and grass, it's always infested with bugs, mice, Snakes and other creatures and vermin, she said with disposition. Cornelia walked over to the window and pointed at the sod-filled ledge and pointed. Our sod house is especially bad during the summer months, sighed Cornelia. In the afternoons, the rattlesnakes would come out of their hidden dens in the walls and roof and sun themselves on the western windowsill. The snakes are hard to keep away. Cornelia paused. Her eyes roamed the room as if she was looking for something. I fear my children being bitten by one of these intruders. She looked up and frowned at the ceiling. The house is miserable during the rainy season. The roof leaks, which turns my indoor dirt floor into a quagmire. The wet roof always takes a few days to dry out. I fear the wet earth's enormous weight may cause the roof to collapse. When the sod roof is dry, like today... The dirt and grass fall like rain inside the house. Oh, that reminds me. Can I add my traveling shirt when you do today's wash, I asked. Cornelia responded, sure. Bring it to the dugout before you leave. After my morning conversation with Cornelia, I began my journey to town. When arriving, I found the atmosphere of this frontier town and the freighting station was all new to me and affected me deeply. The town gave me a youthful adventure of wild tales routed deep down in my soul. At each step down Front Street, I found myself on the threshold of the frontier. Massive freighting wagons, 
some with six horses attached and loaded with piles and bales of green buffalo hides, lumbered in from the level prairie land. The town's narrow main street had a railroad track running down the center, dividing the north and south sides. The north side of the town presented a continual procession of men and buffalo hunters, mostly in rough garb of travel and all intent on the mysterious something that seemed to be in the air. I thought there was a plentiful sprinkling of soldiers, pale-faced, frock-coated gamblers, and some stylishly dressed women with a too-friendly look. There were places of amusement, saloons, and dance halls that I found to peep into sufficient. Dust lay inches deep in the street, and the horses passing along continually raised clouds of it. Dodge City was a quaint country village filled with tents, dugouts, and crude frame buildings that appeared to serve as restaurants, supply houses, saloons, and bagnios. On the south side of the tracks, multiple rows of wooden shanties were relieved by one or two-story frame, dozens of dugouts, a depot, a water tank, and a U.S. government warehouse sprang up to furnish the hunters feed for their teams, ammunition, clothes, blankets, and whiskey. A sidetrack for railroad cars and government mule trains materialized to accommodate the hunters and nearby forts. Thousands of buffalo hides, some in piles and some staked to the ground to dry, several hundred men in various stages of roughness, and a score of abandoned women completed the Boomtown inventory. While in town, I purchased some boot grease from J.B. Edwards Mercantile just north of the Santa Fe tracks. While in the store, I visited Mr. Edwards, who told me he'd been a merchant in Abilene. He said his partner, George Smith, had followed the railroad, setting up temporary merchandising stores, and found the business to be good. He told me how he had hauled lumber from the end of the track in Great Bend, and decided to make a go of it in Dodge City. I inquired about purchasing a pistol scabbard, and he referred me to Zimmerman's place on the north side of the tracks. I returned to Nixon's place that evening, was grateful for the warm soup afforded me, and returned to the barn to ledger my day's adventures before turning in. As I opened my diary, I thought of honest words. A diary is an object. Each word within is a portal to the soul, a gateway, a map of the journey to help remember the past. The light went dark as a day spent to rest upon the dreams of another. November, Monday the 18th, 1872. Went to Fort Dodge with Teamster to get load wood for Mrs. Nixon. Found Theodore when come back. Him and I got dinner at restaurant. Thea and I went to the dance house at night. One of the fair Dulcineas sat by me and invited me to dance. It was 7 o'clock a.m. the next day when the sun had yet to peak upon the horizon. I remembered Cornelia's invitation for breakfast and made my way to the front door. I looked in to see if anyone was up and about, seeing Cornelia had already made the biscuits, eggs, and bacon table. While I enjoyed breakfast, she asked me if I would not mind going to Fort Dodge for firewood. She said a man named Henry Sittler made a daily trip to the fort to deliver hay. Sittler lived a mile east of the Nixon homestead, just on the edge of the Arkansas River Bank. I finished my breakfast thanked Cornelia, and went on my journey to the Sittler homestead. 
When I arrived, I introduced myself to Mr. Sittler, asking if I could ride with him to Fort Dodge. He agreed, and I helped him load the remaining hay bales into his wagon. During our five-mile east journey to Fort Dodge, I inquired about Mr. Sittler's past. Sittler told me he had been in the area since 1868. Yep, these parts were a lonely sight to see with all of this vacant space of prairie grass and rolling hills, he said. Settler scratched the back of his head and looked off into the distance. That is, until we heard the railroad was moving in our direction. Then all hell broke loose. My brother Theodore told me some of the stories, I said. But I'm curious about how these buildings started. Well, you see, Henry, it all goes back to the sale of whiskey, replied Settler. These buffalo hunters got to have their whiskey to keep them going. So a feller by the name of George Hoover and his partner John G. McDonald heard a rumor of the new town and hoped to get situated before the rush began. So they opened a tent saloon in the middle of June. Set up some planks, they did, and supported them with piles of sod blocks. This served as their makeshift bar. It did not take long, and every scalawag in the country showed up to take their pleasures. Sin now pours with sure wickedness, for all is wanting and nothing is being spared. Settler paused a second, pulled his hat down over his eyes, squinted, and jerked at the reins. Get up, mule, get up, Settler hollered. Say, Henry, I got an idea. We might get into a little bosh ourselves, if you're willing. I know a few places where we can make a mash while we paint our noses. What you say, Henry? You good for the trip after we wind up our business? Sounds good to me, I replied. I have yet to see much of the town. Be nice to get to know some people. On our way to Fort Dodge, Sittler told me he was one of 13 children and was originally from Pennsylvania. He said he'd served in the Civil War as a cavalry sergeant. He was captured in June 1864 and spent several months in various Confederate prison camps from Virginia to Georgia. Sittler told me he was included in a prisoner exchange at Savannah following Sherman's historic march to the sea. I fought at the Battle of Gettysburg and was present when General Lee surrendered at Appomattox, explained Settler. Both glorious days of my life, ones I will never forget. Settler looked out onto the empty plains as we passed Dodge City and headed west on the old Santa Fe Trail. Then, with one yank on the rein from the wagon seat, Settler yelled, Get up, you damn mules, get up! To my immediate surprise, the force of the pulling mule team caused me to fall back into the wagon bed. I pulled myself back up into the box seat and looked over to Sittler, who smiled and once again slapped the reins in a whip-like motion around the unmotivated mules. "'Go now, you mules, go now!' he yelled with a snigger. The laugh was in Sittler's eyes, and the way his face changed into that vision of simple joy and unrestrained mirth. The joke was on me for I did not respond only to straighten my hat, which fell sideways on my head. After I was discharged from the military, I drifted into Kansas, explained Sittler. I tried a little farming along the Solomon Valley without much success. I then decided to move further west with an intent on hunting buffalo. I found that buffalo hunting was a stinky business and established a ranch with the intent of contracting with the government to supply several forts along the stage line with hay. So here I am today with little or nothing to bear except for a fine wife and a young child. 
When we arrived at Fort Dodge, the quartermaster directed us to the stables. There we unloaded the hay and stocked up on firewood for an even trade. Finally, we pulled out of Fort Dodge to make our five-mile journey back to Dodge City. As we were leaving, I looked over at the Arkansas River. The sun was at its highest point in the sky, with its golden flare enveloping the wide river below the road. Half a mile across the river from where we traveled was an immense herd of massive woolly beasts. This was a wild and strange sight for me. The experience was a tingling thrill, for I had not seen such a spectacle. It was not at all what I had pictured from the tales told to me by Theodore. This scene was beautiful, and the enormous straggling bulls seemed the grandest of big game beasts. Thousands of buffalo. I could see that the herd circled out of sight beyond the river's other end. I thought I would never forget my first sight of a buffalo herd, and would soon be hunting for them. Soon we arrived at Dodge City, and Mr. Sittler dropped me off in front of Beatty Restaurant. Mr. Sittler told me he would take the firewood to the Nixon Ranch, and we parted ways. It was in Beatty Restaurant where I found my brother Theodore. We had a hearty meal, drank some beer, and talked about venturing to Sherman's Dance Hall, which we did. The only remembrance of the evening at Sherman's saloon was my Dulcinea. Her brown hair brought warmth to her features, a simple frame for that smile and eyes had held more love than she would ever admit. The hue altered as the strands curled and moved, as free as autumn leaves playing in the dayshine. I loved the softness of her curves. With the muscle of a teamster and the blessed fat of a baby, she was the most astonishing girl I had ever met. Easy to talk to, and fun to be around. There's beauty in being a good listener who seeks to make connections, enjoy, and see things from new perspective. She had safe eyes. That's the best way to say it. She had a beauty that made those dime novel princesses look as paper-thin as they were. She was something robust and honest. That was my girl. It was her before she was mine. And it was her all her days. Age can't touch that kind of beauty. It's just there. When Dulcinea flowed and danced, it was as if it were the only way her body truly knew how to speak. Verbally, she was guarded. Physically, she would shrink and fade into the background no matter where she was. Yet on that dance floor, her personality and sensuality burst into the most vibrant picture of a beautiful soul. I watched her move to the music, filling the dance floor crackling somewhat from the old piano. For the most part, that music machine was her only audience, watching her with those two dusty black eyes. As she turned, her eyes caught me standing there. I was less adept in hiding in the shadows than she was. I remember dropping my eyes momentarily before looking. I noticed my head tilted to one side with a hopeful smile plying on my lips. The thought of her body became just the whisper of my imagination as I became incapacitated. There were no thoughts, no focus, only desire and the pain of waiting for the next dance. March, Tuesday the 4th, 1873. Beautiful day. Down in town. Bill Brooks got shot at with needle gun ball passing through two barrels of water lodging an outside iron hoop. Jordan shot at him. 
I was downtown most all day. Pat and Bat went to hunt the horses. Soldier got beat over the head with boot and $5 taken from him in town. March 4th was a fine day to walk down the dust-ridden front street under the late morning sun. The sun rays warmed my brow under my hat as piano music blazed away from inside the saloons. The clouds were as puffs of radiant joy, ready to disperse into the wind. I watched them eddy, pure, reflected, dappled, and swirling until all that remained was that perfect baby blue. I had just finished stacking hay at delivery and decided to join the boys for an afternoon lunch and beer. I spotted Mike McCabe. He was headed east to the end of Front Street. I decided to follow him for any place Mike went. There was fun to be had. He was a joy to be around. Mike was good at clowning around. He was full of antics, a social doctor and healer of goodwill. He never knew it, but he was good at putting everyone around him in better health. As I trailed Mike McCabe down the street, I watched him step up on the boardwalk of James Hanrahan's saloon. Looking in Mike's direction, I saw a shadow of a man standing in the doorway of the saloon. The man peered around the corner of the door. He was holding in the crook of his arm a Sharps 50 buffalo gun. The sun lit up the man's face, and I immediately recognized him as Kirk Jordan. Kirk had been with us on a few buffalo hunts. He was known in these parts as a dead-eye shot. Kirk exited the saloon doorway of the same saloon that Mike was entering. Then up the street, I saw the new city marshal, a man named Brooks. Brooks, a highfalutin feller and a mean rip, took a resting place against an awning pole east in front of Hoover's saloon. Brooks looked out into the street with some confidence while flashing his two pearl-handled, holstered revolvers. Brooks was a shabby character, sporting a narrow mustache with a long, rounded face trimmed out with a Van Dyke goatee. He wore a tall, circular, crowned black hat, supported by a collarless linen shirt. The slipshod dress gave the appearance to everyone who regarded him as dangerous. I looked back in the direction of the saloon and saw Jordan lower his rifle. He steadied it against the door facing, took aim, and was about to fire when Mike McCabe stumbled in between Jordan and his target. Jordan raised the gun to avoid shooting Mike. From his vantage point, Brooks must have caught the motion of Jordan's gun barrel. Brooks suddenly threw himself to a sitting position on the ground behind two barrels of water, trying simultaneously to draw one of his guns. Somehow the gun hung and he failed to pull it from its scabbard. Jordan, seeing Brooks duck behind the barrel, fired at the barrel Brooks hid behind. The fifty caliber bullet from Jordan Sharp's rifle spat a red flame against the afternoon sun. The bullet went through the barrel and lodged in the metal hoop, but cut a hole through it, so the water spouted out and ran down Brooks's neck. Brooks's ears strained for more sounds, more clues as to where the next shot would land. Thinking his single shot killed Brooks, Jordan jumped on his horse and rode off. Brooks stood up once Jordan cleared. Mike, startled from all the commotion, fell back into the street, quickly stood up, rubbed his hand on his left ear, and said, Ain't that the damnedest thing you ever saw? I could tell Mike was bumfuzzled by nearly being shot by Jordan. Still frozen in the middle of the street, Mike yelled out, Look at that boy ride! The muzzle fire from the gun must have confused Mike, 
because he stepped back once more, almost as if he needed to see a wide-angle version of what just happened. Mike then ran over to where Brooks was hiding and fished the bullet out of the barrel. Once Mike retrieved it, he held the lead slug in his hand and began laughing. His laughter was like ripples in a still pond after a stone had been thrown in. It radiated outward towards the packed streets of onlookers, who had been entirely silent until that moment. Now the onlookers, too, began to titter, and soon the ripples of laughter became great waves of hilarity. Mike held the retrieved slug high in the air and carried it with him until he reached the front of the saloon. I decided to join this roughly bunch and grabbed my violin from my saddlebag. I went over to Hanrahan's saloon. I started playing a lively tune, and that's when Mike McCabe started his Irish jig. Given any opportunity, Mike would dance for a crowd. McCabe's jig hadn't changed since last I saw him on a buffalo hunt. He was given all the fancy steps and dancing as if a full orchestra was playing. Although his legs were no longer a blur and the toes weren't pointed, he could amuse the crowd by raising sand. Upon seeing Brooks entering the saloon, he stopped dancing as Brooks seemed displeased. Mike's conduct was somewhat laughable, but he got the slug from Brooks for his effort. Afterward, he joined in with Brooks, who no doubt needed to celebrate his survival. McCabe held his well-earned lead slug from Jordan's rifle high in the air. The hunters laughed with their hearty tones, McCabe collected the drinks he'd been promised, and everyone bent an elbow at the bar. There was a feeling of jubilation in the crowd. We were both firmly on solid ground and levitating all at once. That's it for now. If you want to purchase our newest book on cattle drives, The Days That Tried Men's Souls, you can check out the link on the description page of this podcast. Remember to check out our Wild West podcast shows on iTunes or wildwestpodcast.buzzsprout.com. You can also catch us at Facebook at facebook.com slash wildwestpodcast or on our YouTube channel at Wild West Podcast Mike King YouTube. So make sure you subscribe to our shows listed at the end of the description text of this podcast to receive notifications on all new episodes. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you have any comments or want to add to our series, please write us at wildwestpodcast at gmail.com. We will share your thoughts as they apply to future episodes.